Thank you, Brother Wayne, for leading the service this evening and for your labor for Christ here in this congregation. It's a great blessing to be here today, uh, to be able to stand here once again as we were reflecting earlier today in the place where now three generations of faithful ministers have held forth the word of life. We ought not to take it for granted because there have been many places where when one minister departs, the one who comes afterward is not of the same mind. So it's a great blessing to this congregation here that the Lord has undertaken to give you that grace. And it is a privilege for me to stand here where those men have stood and where Dr. Pollock stands. And always a great blessing to be here in Malvern. We were at the Duffy's home for our dinner today and we thank them for their kind hospitality to us. We're reflecting on the fact that it seems that often in October, I happen to be here uh, during the celebration of the Reformation. And I've thought back in my mind, I've lost track of how many times I've been here. I'm sure we could figure it out if we needed to. But many times, even going back to the days of Pastor Greer, I was here in October to deal with some theme concerning the Reformation. And certainly when Dr. Allison was here, he wanted me often to come and speak about that theme. So I'm delighted to be here on that mission again this evening. I would ask for your prayers for the American Council of Christian Churches this week. Uh, We will be, Mary and I will be traveling tomorrow to Carlisle. And there we will be gathering with all of the brethren uh, for the annual convention. It is the 81st anniversary this year of the founding of the council. And it has been a great honor for me to have some part in it during recent years. But do pray for the convention. Uh, Our brother Dan Greenfield, who is the executive secretary, was very uh, pleased to tell me when I was with him earlier this last week uh, that there are already 60 registrations for the convention. And last year, including those who registered when they arrived at the convention, there were just a few more than that. So it's a very encouraging time, and I trust you'll pray that God will meet with us. Uh, I am to bring the keynote address on Tuesday evening, uh, and others, Dr. Pollock included, will have the responsibility of the pulpit at other times during the convention. But it is a critical time for our council and for all of the constituent bodies, as we call them, that the council represents. So pray for us this week as you remember to do so. Now let us turn in God's word to the Acts of the Apostles and chapter 20. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20. Chapter 20 in the Acts of the Apostles deals with the aftermath of the riot at Ephesus, that we find in chapter 19. 
Uh, we're not going to deal with that immediate uh, aftermath. We're going to break into the chapter at verse 15 and read down through verse 32. Acts chapter 20, verse 15. Let us worship the Lord as we hear his word. And we sailed thence and came the next day over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogillium. And the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia. For he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. And to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up 
and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Amen. May God add his blessing to the public reading of his infallible word for his name's sake. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we rejoice again tonight to come to the open page of the holy book, the inspired and infallible word that thou hast given by the miraculous inspiration and the providential preservation. We thank thee that we have not lost any of the word of God. O Lord, we praise Thee tonight that we come to it again as those who are searching for great treasure. And we know that we shall find the treasure in Thy Word. Now, Lord, open our hearts to receive the engrafted Word. Grant that Thy Spirit may attend the proclamation of the Word and empower its application to every soul. O Lord, Fill me with that power for this great work that thou hast called me to do. Hear our cry, we pray, and abide with us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Our text is the 24th verse of chapter 20, where Paul said, to the Ephesian elders, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And I want to focus your attention especially on those words at the end of the text to testify the gospel of the grace of God. We are here this evening remembering again the mighty work of God's power in the Protestant Reformation. When I was a boy... My family and I lived in West Germany for four years. It's a long time ago, 1959 to 1963. Those were the years. And we lived within probably 30 miles of the city of Worms, where Martin Luther made his famous stand in 1521. So from my earliest days, I was immersed, you can say, in the culture of the Protestant Reformation. Later on, when I came to study the Reformation, I realized the privilege that I received in being in those places. The Protestant Reformers often faced attacks upon the work they were doing. And the charge basically followed the line that the reformers sought to bring new doctrine into the church, that they were innovators. It was often lodged against Martin Luther that he was the author of innovations, that these things had never been believed. 
But the reality that I like to point out was that the reformers were not the innovators. That those who came before them had engaged in innovation. The reformers did not seek to undermine the right way as though they were subversives of the truth. The reformers were in fact restoring that which centuries of tradition buried. They sought to identify the corruption, both theological and otherwise, that accumulated over centuries. In that regard, they did not deviate significantly from previous voices for reform that arose during the Middle Ages, including some voices whom the church silenced permanently, like Savonarola of Florence. There was frequent criticism, even among the so-called faithful, about the rampant immorality that flourished even in the papal apartments in Rome, where Pope Alexander VI had openly acknowledged having children, which was something that priests of the church were not supposed to have. So there was frequent criticism, but if the reforms of the immorality were the only goals of the reformers, their work would not have been such a great threat. Because even those who sought to restrain Luther had to admit that the abuses he described were there. They couldn't be denied. But you see, the Protestant reformers went beyond the complaints of such abuses. They saw the real issue. It was the message of the Scriptures. It was, in the language of our text, the gospel of the grace of God. And as they preached that message, they proclaimed that it was not a message that they or anyone else invented. The message, rather, bore the stamp of Jesus Christ. It was the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Reformers read the pages of Holy Scripture with the realization that there is no other gospel than that which Paul and the other apostles spread across the Mediterranean world. That was the only message they had. And the Reformers recognized that the message they had to proclaim focused on the grace of God. It was the gospel of the grace of God. So they were intent on getting back to the message of the apostles in the first century and applying that message again to the hearts of people. And I believe that is the reason that so many people felt the power of God in those days. And people by hundreds and thousands, turned away from darkness and immorality and trusted in Christ. 
So part of the Reformation's legacy to us tonight, here we are in the 21st century, more than 500 years now after the Reformation began, part of that legacy is the Word of God. The authoritative book. I like to use the word infallible because that not only conveys the idea that it is without error, but it also conveys the idea that it has authority, it has power. The book of God had a clear message on which the reformers sought to major. So here was another facet of their legacy. They devoted themselves to the reassertion of what I call tonight the apostolic doctrine. The apostolic doctrine, going back to the first century, going back to the ministry of the apostles of Jesus Christ. The apostolic doctrine was the revelation of the gospel of the grace of God of which Paul spoke in our text. But it was the same message that all the apostles proclaimed. It was what they were commissioned to deliver. Not all the apostles were writers of Scripture, but all the apostles were preachers of the gospel of the grace of God. So, if you went from Paul to Peter to John to Andrew to Philip, Bartholomew, and all the other apostles there, there was not a different emphasis. That is, you couldn't say, well, well, that's what Paul said, or that's what Peter said, or that's what Bartholomew said. It was not a different doctrine for Paul and another doctrine for Peter or for John. There was one doctrine that lay at the heart of the gospel of the grace of God, and so one doctrine that lay at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. The doctrine of God's salvation through grace alone. Now the Reformation was a religious struggle. Even secular historians have had to acknowledge that fact. The religious struggle of the Reformation was in the hands of the disciples of the gospel of the grace of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, against the custodians in the Roman Catholic Church of theological apostasy and moral corruption and compromise with those things. And so to those courageous men in the days of the Reformation, we have a great debt tonight. The fruits of their efforts are evident to this hour and in this place. And we can say tonight that we are here in a Protestant church tonight because of the sacrifices that the Reformers made. For that doctrine of which we speak, there were many adherents of the Reformation who gave their lives. Literally, they suffered and died. And it is to that doctrine 
that the people of God must reaffirm their allegiance in this age when compromise is tearing out the heart of gospel truth. We remember the Reformation during this month of October because to forget it is to drift back into the bondage from which the people of 16th century Europe secured their deliverance. So we come to think of the apostolic doctrine of the gospel, of the grace of God. Paul said that's what he testified. That's what he proclaimed. And there are several aspects of that apostolic doctrine I would like you to consider with me this evening. First of all, total depravity. Total depravity. It was not a revolutionary thought. It was the apostolic doctrine. But to hear some critics of the Reformers speak, you would think that they had come up with something that no one had ever heard before. But the Reformers preached the doctrine of total depravity in its fullness. You see, the Roman Catholic Church taught for centuries that people not only could, but must cooperate in their salvation through the performance of good deeds. Now, I want to say that the Reformers did not discount the importance of good works in the life of a Christian. They were not saying that Christians should not be concerned about good works. But they denied, and I echo their denial, they denied the ability of any person to earn the favor of God through those works. Luther knew the terror of trying to please God. His monastic mentors had taught him that he had the ability in himself to satisfy God. But here is what he wrote. The sight of a crucifix was like lightning to me. And when his name was spoken, I would rather have heard that of the devil, because I thought I must do good works until Christ, because of them, became friendly and gracious. I could not suppose that God was other than angry and that I must placate him with my good deeds. The doctrine of the apostles taught that there was nothing anyone could do to placate God. That doctrine stressed that there was no amount of human merit sufficient to discharge one jot of divine condemnation. Let us turn to the epistle to the Romans. We heard from Romans 4 earlier in our service. Now we turn to Romans 3. And to verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. And let us get this 
statement again, there is none that seeketh after God. We often hear today, well, people are looking for something. Well, they might be looking for something, but they're not looking for God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. When Martin Luther read those words, he felt the wound they made in carnal pride. And later in his life he wrote, Unless a man learns to listen freely to that which goes against him, unless he rejoices to have his own intent thwarted and reproved, again, unless he is unhappy or at least disquieted when his own word, way, and work are lauded and extolled, he cannot be saved. Now John Calvin was more blunt, and to be more blunt than Martin Luther was an accomplishment. For Calvin taught that from the point of view of divine truth, even the philosophers, apart from God's revelation, are, and here was his language, blinder than bats and moles. And apart from God's grace, the noblest virtues of the pagans are but splendid vices. The reason people have despised the reformers and the reformation so much is that the apostolic doctrine that they preached strikes against human pride. People want to know, what can I do to satisfy God? The answer is nothing. True Reformed preaching does not play to human pride. It does not puff people up. It lays sinners in the dust. Total depravity. The gospel of the grace of God focuses on total depravity. That means total inability, by the way. But having done that, the apostolic doctrine of the gospel of the grace of God proclaims grace then is the source of every spiritual blessing. So that's the second thing that we notice in our text, God's grace in Christ. So against the inability, the total depravity of sinners, the apostolic doctrine that Paul testified laid the omnipotence of the sovereign God. That is the only hope. During this year, I've been listening from time to time, not consistently, I should say, listening from time to time to Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, listening to the whole thing all the way through. It's been very illuminating, especially the thought that he wrote that work initially when he was in his mid-twenties. Calvin began his institutes with the sovereignty of God. And in doing so, he sought to direct the attention of his audience to the theme of divine grace in salvation. And that emphasis leads naturally to the focus on the person and work of Christ. The Reformation was Christ 
centered. It was not primarily the preaching of ethical principles as the first priority. It was the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior. So those who wish to be true to the apostolic doctrine will aim at the same objective. That is what goes on, I trust, in every free Presbyterian pulpit. The testimony of John Newton in late 18th century England was that the message of the apostolic doctrine was the centrality of Christ's person and work so that every element of Reformed theology finds its meaning in the person of Christ. When Paul testified the gospel of the grace of God, he was drawing the attention of his hearers always to the person of Christ. And when he did so, and the other apostles with him, they expressed another prime assertion of apostolic doctrine. That's the third thing that we find in our text justification by faith alone. We heard from Romans chapter 4 earlier in this service this evening concerning justification by faith alone. That it is not possible to be justified by the works of the law. Here was the truth upon which the hinge of history swung. Luther testified that when he began to study for his lectures on the epistle to the Romans, he read the phrase, the righteousness of God. And he despaired because he felt that he was required to measure up to that unyielding standard. He had to find a way in himself to measure up to that standard. But he wrote, later, night and day I pondered it. That gives you some sense of how much it exercised him. Night and day I pondered it, until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped, he said, that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. The grace of God. Justification by faith alone. Your pastor is the editor of our denominational magazine called Current. Some months ago now, he asked me to write an article for the fall issue for this year has just come out concerning justification by faith alone. And so I would commend that article to you. 
Because Luther went on to write in this connection, if you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. The joy of a full and free justification is the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. Not because of any act of penance, but because of Christ's work of obedience to the law and sacrifice as payment for the broken law. There's nothing else you can do then when Christ has done it all. And yet, as I dealt with in that article that I mentioned, there are people today, yes, even people who claim to be reformed, who are saying that, no, the justification is not known for certain until the judgment. I'm here to tell you tonight that that is a lie. Because Paul's message of the gospel of the grace of God was that there is justification only through that grace and only by faith. When your sins are imputed to Christ, and here we have echoes of Dr. Allison who used to stand in this very place and proclaim this truth. When your sins are imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, then God accepts you completely. Not waiting for you to do something else to make that justification sure. Justification by faith alone. And then there is another emphasis of the apostolic doctrine, the fourth aspect of our text, Christ's finished sacrifice. The gospel of the grace of God that Paul testified was a gospel that again and again emphasized Christ has done everything. If Christ has left anything for his people to do, they are doomed. They will perish. The reformers returned then to the apostolic doctrine when they stressed the sufficiency of the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ. They came to the Roman Mass and they saw in it an injurious attack on the sacrifice of Christ. They looked to the Scriptures as they did in Hebrews chapter 10, the epistles of the Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Once for all. The Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli wrote in his 67 articles of religion, Christ, who gave himself once and for all upon the cross, is a sacrifice and victim making satisfaction in eternity for the sins of all the faithful. Hence the Mass, and by that language he means the Eucharist, the The Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice, but a commemoration of the sacrifice made once and for all upon the cross and is, as it were, a sign of our redemption in Christ. The apostolic doctrine emphasizes the work of Christ on Calvary as one that is finished. It will never happen again. It cannot be reenacted. It cannot be perpetuated. His work must succeed and has succeeded in all it intended to accomplish. So the legacy of the Reformation, I tell you, is in the authoritative book and the apostolic doctrine it proclaims. So tonight, As we think again of the Reformation, let us cling to the legacy of the Reformation. This apostolic doctrine, the gospel of the grace of God. Because when we cling to that legacy, we travel in that way. And we learn to refuse any other way. There's only one way by which to gain acceptance with God. It is not by doing the best we can. The only way to gain acceptance with God is through the finished sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul said, as he took his leave of the Ephesian elders there at Miletus, that he had finished, he wanted to finish the ministry that God had given to him. And that ministry was to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Let us resolve that we will persevere in testifying that same gospel of the grace of God. And that whatever we're called to do by God in our daily lives, that testimony of the gospel of the grace of God will encourage us and comfort us in the face of our ongoing sin that there is an answer to it and that answer is in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
May God then bless his word to our hearts tonight and grant us to be faithful to the legacy of the Reformation in the authoritative book and the apostolic doctrine. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, once again we have come to this remembrance of the Reformation, rejoicing that these who have gone before us in the way and some at the cost of their blood and their lives have resolved to recover that apostolic doctrine. Lord, we thank Thee tonight for those who have preached to us, who have testified to us the gospel of the grace of God. And how we pray that that gospel may be to us the treasure that thou hast caused it to be to so many others. O Lord, we pray for thy people here in this congregation that thou wilt make each of them one who values the legacy of the reformers, the legacy that teaches us that there is nothing we can add to the work that Christ has done. And if there are any listening to the word of God tonight who are doubtful concerning the salvation of their souls, we pray that thou wilt move in their hearts by the power of thy spirit and grant that they may turn away from their own efforts and rest completely in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, hear us, we pray. We ask thee, Lord, that thou wilt dismiss us tonight with thy richest blessing, the blessing of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May that blessing be the abiding portion of all thy blood-bought people, both this night and until our Lord Jesus calls us to himself in death or else comes again in all his power and majesty. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.